Well, thank you very much, Sarah. Um, I'm going to meander, uh, is the short answer. Um, I've been teaching economics here for millions of years, so I'm going to talk mainly as an economist. Um, there's going to be a bit of microeconomics, that is the way individual markets work, some macroeconomics, because you can get into an awful mess if you obsess about the microeconomics and forget about the macroeconomics, and that's particularly the case with pensions. And then there's going to be some simple data. So what I want to do after some brief initial stuff is to talk a bit about financing higher education, then sort of the last quarter of an hour or so to talk about the pensions quote-unquote crisis. Um, let me start off by doing what we always tell our students to do, which is to define our terms. I'm going to talk about public economics and pub economics. Public economics is essentially about the economic role of government. Why it taxes us, taxes us, uh, what it spends the money on, whether any of those things make sense. So that involves analysing the dividing line between the market and the state. In fact, let, let me try this out. Put your hand up if you believe with the follow if you agree with the following value judgment. In a civilized society, everyone should have access to adequate nutrition. Put your hand up if you believe that. Okay? In a civilized society, everyone should have access to adequate health care. So why do we have a national health service but not a national food service? And the answer is it's got nothing to do with ideology because otherwise we would say it's immoral to charge for food because without it people would die. It's got a lot to do with the economics of information which sheds considerable light on which tasks are best carried out by the market and which by the state. And I'm not going to go through this, so I'll just give you the punchline. There's a series of conditions under which markets will be efficient. Food, as a technical matter, conforms with those conditions. Healthcare doesn't. So public economics is very much about the dividing line between the market and the state. And as I say, um, most of the arguments in pubs in the evening are ideological, and they shouldn't be. They should be technical. So that's public economics. That brings us onto pub economics, which is a, a coinage of my own. Pub economics is about a situation where everyone knows something's true. It's obviously true. Of course it's true. But actually, it's false. And pub economics is very, very powerful. And one of the banes of my life is that pub economics is so simple and intuitive and obvious that where it's wrong, the public economics you use to counter it don't have the same good sound bites. And one of the things I'll be trying to do today is to come up with a few public economics sound bites. So let me come on to <coughs> financing higher education. <coughs> Three statements that everyone knows is right. High fees, high debt, how could a socialist government be so brutal to British students? How can someone like Barr, who claims to support the welfare state, be so beastly to students? Uh, second bit of public economics, fees harm access. You need free higher education um, because otherwise you're going to harm the poor. And a slightly more technical one, we have interest subsidies on student loans. Those are there to help students and of course they help students. Now, all three of those statements are immensely believable. Um, they're very good statements. Their only deficiency is they're all three wrong. And just briefly by way of a bit of personal history, I was leading a blameless life as an academic in the late 1980s, and I was led astray by my friend and colleague Ian Crawford, who got me involved in the higher education debate. Um, he and I both got involved because we were appalled by the low participation rate of students from poor backgrounds in Britain. Um, as a value judgment, I'm on the side of the students. But if you are on the side of the students, my own view is don't get emotional about it. Think it through. And there was a marvellous programme on medicine by Jonathan Miller 20, 25 years ago, 
where he showed a clip of an elderly woman going blue round the lips because she had a major heart condition and she then had her heart bypass operation and the next clip was her rolling round on the grass with her grandchildren. And Jonathan Miller said something I've never forgotten. He said, the doctors, he said, by treating her body as a mechanism have restored her humanity. And I thought that's a brilliant illustration of the juxtaposition between scientific thinking and the reason why we care about these things. So what I'm going to do is try and be clinical about higher education finance. I'm going to start off talking about the public economics of paying for universities and then with that as background I will come back to the pub economics. So first of all what are we trying to achieve? We want high quality higher education and we want it to be open to people from all backgrounds. What's the problem? Well one problem is Britain has a rubbish record on widening participation. I will come on to some data later. Um, the second problem is a shortage of resources. And this is not a new problem. It goes back a very long time. This cartoon is from 1997. They're saying he's studying the effect of underfunding on academic performance. What's under the microscope? The fund. It hasn't changed. It's a bit better now than it was, but it's a continuing problem. So lessons from e whoops. I seem to have missed a slide. Never mind. So lessons from economic theory. Um, lesson one: competition between universities helps students. So. Does competition work? Is competition a good idea? What the economics of information tells us is competition benefits consumers where consumers are well informed. So a key question is whether you, the students in the audience, are well informed. Now, my view is that students are mostly a savvy, streetwise bunch. There's a lot of information available. More can and should be made available. And in my view, good information is a central source of quality assurance. If you think, what would an, a bright 16-year-old ask about going to university? They're going to say, will it be fun? Will I be well taught? Will I get a good job? Now, information answers or gives, gets people a long way on all three. Information on, you know, there's a lot of information out there about will it be fun, comparing nightlife in London with nightlife in Leeds or Nottingham. Um, information on teaching... I'm a hardliner. The students here know that you have to fill in teaching evaluations on each of your courses. Um, I think those should be made publicly available to future students and their parents. And thirdly, data on employment outcomes. What happens to students at LSE after they graduate? That's the sort of information you need. So my view is students and prospective students are well informed. They can be made better informed. Is this true for all students? No, it's not. Uh, students from poorer backgrounds where none of their family have been to university uh, have poor information and that's something one needs to address when one starts to tackle the problem of what you should really do to widen participation. Ask the same question about school education. Will competition between schools benefit school children? You've got to be a lot more careful because school children are not well-informed consumers. So I think it is perfectly consistent to be sceptical about competition between schools, as I am, but in favour of competition uh, between universities, which I am. Um, so the argument for competitive fees is that uh, fees bring in extra resources, more money for universities. Competition creates incentives for universities to use those resources efficiently. So you have more money and you use it more efficiently, and that's part of the argument for fees. Another part of the argument for fees is a counterintuitive one. They're fairer. It seems to me grossly unfair to get a student who goes to Bulls Pond Road Tech to pay the same fee as one coming to LSE. And I don't want to name 
university names, so I will leave it at that. It just seems to me unfair. It's given the gradient in participation, given the fact that it's typically middle-class students who go to the best universities, subsidizing higher education too heavily is equivalent to saying, we want the poor to have access to champagne, therefore we should subsidize champagne. It's a great argument if you're a middle-class champagne drinker, but um, it shouldn't satisfy a social scientist. So lesson one, competition's a good thing. Lesson two, graduates should share in the costs of their degree. Now note that I'm saying graduates, not students. Higher education creates what economists call external benefits, i.e. there are benefits to society over and above the benefits to the individual, benefits in terms of growth, social participation, etc. So it's right that the taxpayer should always contribute. But there's also a lot of evidence that higher education confers significant benefits to the individual. The government always talks about the financial benefits to the individual, but the benefits are much wider than that. When I see my ex-students, they're by no means all of them earning shed loads of money. But disproportionately, they really enjoy their work. And job satisfaction is an enormously important payoff to higher education. If there are private benefits to the individual, then it's right that beneficiaries should share some of the costs. But students are broke. And their parents may not be well off. So it's not students who should pay. You need some way of making sure that students get their higher education free. It's graduates who repay. And that brings us on to the third set of lessons from economic theory, namely that well-designed loans have uh, core characteristics, of which the most important is, in the jargon, income contingent repayments. That is to say, your loan repayments are not 150 quid a month. They are X percent of your earnings collected as a payroll deduction by your employer alongside income tax and national insurance contributions. And Ian Crawford and I spent 10 years campaigning for loans with income contingent repayments, which we've had in Britain since 1998. Why that argument? Well, there's a series of efficiency arguments that originally go back to Milton Friedman writing in 1955. And they say, it's in, at, at its core, the argument is very simple. If you borrow to buy a house, the house acts as physical security for the loan. So you are prepared to borrow because you know that if you lose your job, in general, you can sell the house and pay off your loan. And that works very well so long as you and the lender don't act silly and lend silly amounts. But if you borrow 80% of the value of a house, you can get out of it by selling the house. So you're prepared to borrow. <coughs> the lender, similarly, if you can't repay, the lender can repossess and sell the house. So the house acts as security both for lender and borrower, which is why private markets for mortgages, until very recently, have worked very well. And once they are properly <coughs> regulated again, will work very well. The case of student loans, there's no physical security for the loan. So are you going to take out a large loan that you don't know whether you're going to be able to repay? Answer not on the scale that it would be efficient for you to borrow. Whereas if your repayments are related to your earnings, that protects you from excessive uncertainty. So there's efficiency arguments for income contingent repayments. There's also equity arguments. The argument is loans, income contingent loans, promote access or at least don't harm access because loans have built-in insurance against, the inability, against inability to repay. Not a graduate tax. It's a genuine loan. You stop repaying once you've borrowed. So that's a central characteristic. Um, second characteristic is loans should be large enough to cover all fees and realistic living costs. That makes higher education free to the student. The student loans company pays LSE your tuition fees. The student loans company squirts money into your bank account to cover your living costs. The third bit which I will come back to uh, if I have time, is that the loan should have a sensible interest rate and 
the starting point for that is it should not be the bank overdraft rate or the credit card rate. It should be broadly the government's cost of borrowing. So it's the rate of interest on long-term government bonds. So just to illustrate the way things work in the UK, these are uh, slightly elderly data, but what you can see there is four people with different <coughs> levels of earnings, their monthly income tax deductions, monthly national insurance contributions, monthly loan repayments. What that shows is that low earners make low or no repayments on their student loans, that repayments track changes in earnings week by week, month by month, uh, exactly like income tax and national insurance contributions. And for all but the, the richest, loan repayments are very small compared to income tax or national insurance contributions. And as I say, we've had that arrangement here since 1998. So that's three lessons from economic theory. That then brings us on to what does that tell us about what a good system of financing higher education would look like. And it's a strategy with three elements. And this is the bit that gets politicians uh, confused because a lot to, to an economist juggling t a strategy with two or three elements is fairly easy. Indeed, I guess this is true for most other social sciences as well. But very often politicians have a habit of looking at only one bit. Leg one, how do you pay for universities? Answer, you have variable fees, so different fees at different universities that create competition. But they're not fees that the student pays, they're deferred fees, the graduate repays them. So you have variable fees which promote quality in the ways that I've talked about earlier, more resources and more competition. I'd also argue they're fairer than any other method. So that's how you pay for universities. How then do you support students? Answer, higher education should be free at the point of use. Loans should be large enough to cover all costs. They should be universal in the sense that all students should be entitled to the full loan. If you do that, higher education is free to the student. Students are no longer poor. They are not forced to rely on parental contributions that parents may or may not pay. Uh, they are unimpaled from excessive reliance on expensive credit card debt uh, or overdrafts. And they don't have to work long hours to earn money. So that's the second element of the strategy. Now, my partner in crime, Ian Crawford, was a hard-nosed Scot. And he was used, and, and, and also one of my closest friends. And he was, he, he'd say to me, why do you keep whining on about grants and scholarships for students from poor backgrounds? He'd say, surely, if you have loans with income contingent repayments that people aren't going to pay if they don't earn anything, it's a no-lose bet. You don't need grants and scholarships. And uh, he bugged me for long enough that eventually I worked out the answer. <coughs> if the world consisted only of well-informed students, i.e. middle-class students, Ian's right. All you need are variable fees covered by an income contingent loan, and we've got our strategy with two elements. The point is, that's not the case. You need active measures, the third element, active measures to promote access, that's for those students disproportionately who are not well informed, who don't know about university. And when one talks about the third element, there are three bits to it, which I'll come back to. There's raising attainment in school, there is improving the information and raising the aspirations of young people from poor backgrounds, and those are actually the two important ones. Money is a third bit Politicians obsess about grants and money. Actually, money, I don't think, is the most important. So, three lessons from economic theory, leading to a strategy with three elements, variable fees, income contingent loans, and active measures to promote access. That's the public economics. So we now come on to the pub economics. And our first pub economic statement, fees harm access or <coughs> higher education should be free. Now, like the rest of you, the idea of getting into furious discussions over a good bottle of wine or two in the evening is great fun. 
But as social scientists, when all else fails, look at the evidence. Over-reliance on taxation doesn't achieve any of the objectives I've talked about earlier. It doesn't promote quality. It doesn't promote access. Um, the first failure is quality. If you rely on the taxpayer, as universities, you're not going to get enough money. Higher education will always lose out to school education, to the health service, to the claims of population aging. There's more older people. I'll come on to that. Medical technology is inexorably and mostly beneficially increasing what is possible. Higher education is always going to lose out in the battle for funds. So if you rely on taxation, you're not going to get the money and you're not going to have the competitive environment that gets universities to take their students seriously. That's the first failure. The second failure is access. These data relate to the time before we had fees in Britain. And they are appalling. Take 100 people, young people whose parents are professionals, and 100 young people whose parents uh, come, uh, are manual workers. In 2000 and the early 2000s, 81 of this group went to university, 15, one five of this group. So free higher education led to a shameful record on participation. Finally, tax funding is regressive. When you say we should have free health care, one of many reasons why that's a sound argument is rich and poor use the health service. With higher education, it's a matter of choice whether you go or not, and the people who go mainly come from better off backgrounds. So if you have tax finance, then my sound bite is the taxes of the, the truck driver pay for the degree of the old Etonian. It's what economists call regressive. It redistributes from poorer people to richer people. And I'm going to argue that the real barrier to access is not the fact that people have to pay tuition fees, it's that they leave school at 16, usually for reasons that um, go back a lot earlier. And if you've got money to spend on widening participation, then grants won't get you anything like the same bang for your buck in terms of participation as putting in resources earlier in the system. So what really determines access? These are five social science questions that I suspect would be asked by disciplines across the school. Where are there the biggest social benefits? Where is the most money spent? Who gets the best GCSEs? That's exam results at age 16. Who stays on after age 16? And who goes to university? So looking at these in turn, where are there the biggest social benefits? Answer you get the highest social benefits from preschool children. Biggest bang for your public spending buck on the tinies, and thereafter it declines. So you might think, well, maybe that's the way public spending could go. Where is the most money spent? You guys, higher education. Where's the least spent? On the under fives. Now, you've only got to look at those two diagrams to show that something isn't going right. You then say, who gets the best GCSEs? And the answer is the children of professionals. The top bar is the children of higher professional workers, and close to 80% of them get uh, good GCSE results. It then the successive groups uh, do less well. So who gets the best GCSEs? Answer, children from professional backgrounds. Who are the ones who stay on after 16? Guess what? It's the ones with the best GCSEs. So who stays on? People with the best GCSEs. Who then goes to university? This, to me, is the ultimate killer punch to the argument that fees uh, harm access. 
the top two bars are for young people with the best A-level results, 25 A-level points or more. The light blue one at the top are people with, uh, from middle-class backgrounds. The dark blue bar, people from uh, blue-collar backgrounds. If you get cracking good A-levels, you go to university. I think 97% and 94% from memory. If you get good but not quite good A-levels, then participation is somewhat lower. But again, very little difference between children of, from professional or manual backgrounds. Message. If you control for data, the gradient... Uh, sorry, if you control for attainment in school, the gradient between people from professional and manual backgrounds largely disappears. This statistic, 81 from professional backgrounds, 15 from poor backgrounds, those are the raw data. Control for attainment, control for A-level results, and that gradient largely disappears. So the key determinant of participation is how well people do in school. Therefore, if you want to widen participation, that's what you should be trying to do. I remember Charles Clark, when he was Secretary of State for Education, losing his temper at a student debate. If I were a real socialist, he said, I wouldn't spend a penny on higher education. I'd spend it all on nursery education. And that's exactly the point. So what policies really widen participation? Answer, promote attainment. Why does access fail? It's a naught to 16 issue, really. Low attainment, lack of information and aspirations, to some extent lack of money. You need policies to address all three. So early education measures is anything you can do to um, improve early child development. My colleagues and friends here know that we have young grandchildren. I see all the time the huge amount of stimulus that these little scraps can absorb. That's when you need to do it. Um, you need a life cycle approach to education spending. Spend more on the tinies and less on people higher up the education spectrum. I don't know if Sarah will agree with that, but... Uh, <laughs> give us the money. Um, action on information and aspirations. Um, this is where universities have an important role. I mean, as you know, LSE students mentor students in inner city schools. We have visit days, Saturday schools, summer schools, winter schools. Incredibly important to demystify universities. Um, money measures, something in Britain called education maintenance allowances. That's income-tested financial support to children to keep them in school from 16 to 18. And one of the things the government did in the most recent reforms that is very clever, they said, if you get an education maintenance allowance, you will automatically get a grant when you go to university. So the starting off at 16, you tell people, we'll give you money, and that money will continue as you go through university. So that's the first bit of pub economics, that fees harm access, and it ain't so. It's lack of attainment that harms access. High fees, high debt. This is the, the NUS cry. It's the tabloid cry. Now, several points. First of all, we're talking about a payroll deduction, not credit card debt. If you had a £20,000 credit card debt, you would rightly have sleepless nights, and so would your parents. 20000 as a payroll deduction is tiny. I mean, the bad news for the students amongst you is that over a full career, if you have a typical full career of a, a typical graduate, you're going to hand the British government about a million pounds in income tax and national insurance contributions. You know, compared to which, 20,000 pounds student loan repayments is, is really tiny. And when parents talk to me about this, I say, you know, do you lie awake worrying over your child's future tax bill? And they, they goggle at me as though I was slightly batty. Um, of course not. That's the right bit of people's brain. It's the payroll deduction bit, not the credit card bit. It's the payroll deduction is a category pain in the butt, not category sleepless nights. 
So that's high fees, high debt. Um, the third bit of pub economics is that interest subsidies help students. Now, I have to explain what's going on here. Um, students who take out a loan in Britain, the interest rate you pay is equal to the rate of inflation. It's what economists call a zero real rate. That's a lower rate than the government can borrow at. So there is an interest subsidy. Now what's wrong, and, and the argument for the interest subsidy is interest subsidies help students and therefore help to widen participation. What's wrong with a blanket interest subsidy? Well, the zero real interest rate, strike one, it's enormously expensive. Of every hundred the student loan company lends out, about a third never comes back just because of the cost of the interest subsidy. So that's between 1.2 billion and 1.5 billion pounds a year. That impedes quality, one of our key objectives. Student support is politically more sensitive than university income. So student support crowds out university income at the expense of quality. The interest subsidy, far from helping access, impedes access. What is the effect of subsidies? I drill into my students that when they hear that question, in a zombie-like zombie -like mantra, they say, subsidies cause shortages. There was an experiment in this. It was called communism. If you subsidize student loans, the treasury will ration them because they are too expensive. Student loans are still, though they're better than they were, not large enough to cover realistic living costs. One of the scandals is that there's no loan for part-time students. That's no accident. That's because, the cost, because of the cost of the interest subsidy. Um, there's no loans for UK postgraduate students. Same reason. And finally, and worst, interest subsidies are deeply regressive. And I don't want to run out of time and crowd myself out, so I'm just going to make that as an assertion. And if any of you don't believe me, nobble me afterwards or send me an email, I'm happy to make that stand up. What it does is it benefits with exquisite precision entirely the wrong people. The only people who benefit substantially from interest subsidies are successful professionals in mid-career. It's the wrong people at the wrong time. So what ought to be done is that the interest rate on student loans should be raised to the government's cost of borrowing for students in jobs with targeted interest subsidies, for instance, for people looking after young children who are not in the labour force. So replace blanket interest subsidies by targeted interest subsidies. Um, finally, on higher education, whoops, not, whoops. Why does this matter? Why does pub economics matter? We had a higher education act passed in 2004 um, took effect in 2006. January 2004, a government with a majority of 160, and the bill went through its crucial vote with a majority of five. Why did the bill not pass by acclamation? Answer, pub economics. There's misinformation and disinformation. There's conflation of student loans with credit card debt already explained that that distinction is critical. There is a failure, and not always an innocent failure, to see that if loans have income contingent repayments, the conventional arguments about interest subsidies are turned upside down. And finally, the middle class, who are the main beneficiaries of heavy subsidies for higher education, defend their own interests under the guise of improving access. So there is a lot of posturing about widening participation, but it's actually middle class rent seeking. This should not be a surprise. Why should Brits be any different from the middle class in any other country? So what are my messages to counter the pub economics on higher education? Message one, higher education is free to the student. It's graduates who make repayments. And the government has been wimpish beyond belief about that, because I said to the education department, Here's a great, genuine Ian Crawford soundbite 
students get it free. It's graduates who repay. Why did the education department not use it? Their lawyers told them it isn't true. Because it's not only graduates who repay, it's people who have been students but did not get their degree, so they are not graduates, but nevertheless they have to repay. Now, you know, sort of small footnote, terms and conditions apply, etc. I mean, the government's been woeful on that. Message two, loans have income contingent repayments. So it's a payroll deduction, not credit card debt. Something I haven't mentioned, anything you haven't repaid after 25 years is forgiven. That is of enormous benefit to women. There's a highly beneficial gender gradient to that, since it's more often women than men who take time out of the labor force to look after young children. So they're protected. So people with low weekly earnings are protected by income contingent repayments. People with low lifetime earnings are protected by the 25-year right. So another way of thinking about this arrangement is it's a graduate tax except that it doesn't continue forever. It stops after you've repaid your contribution. So it's a capped graduate tax. And the third message is keep the scale of the debt in context. It's not 20,000 credit card debt. It's 20,000 payroll deduction, which is tiny compared to income tax and national insurance contributions. And finally, student loans and um, student loans and pensions are both essentially um, redistribution from yourself to yourself over the life cycle. And for that reason, to bring that point out, my first loan proposal was to piggyback loan repayments not on income tax but on national insurance contributions. And that makes the point that um, student loans and pensions are both life cycle redistribution. Let me use my remaining time to talk briefly about pensions. Having said student loans are life cycle redistribution, it's you redistributing from your future middle-aged selves to your younger selves. Pensions is people redistributing from our middle-aged selves to our later selves. Public economics says there's a pensions crisis and what causes it is the baby boom and the way to fix the problem is to move from state pay-as-you-go pensions to funded pensions. Everybody knows they're true. They're not. Proposition one. It ain't the baby boom. The main cause of the quote-unquote crisis is nothing short-run. It's the failure of pension systems to adapt to three very long-term trends. People are living longer. And they've been, life expectancy has been rising for a very long time. Secondly, fertility is going down. And that's true across more and more countries. And it's true in developing countries at a lower level of income than fertility started to decline in the industrialized world. And there's a long-term trend to earlier retirement. Now, the baby boom exists in many countries. It's relevant. It's a shorter-term problem. It's not the real driver. The problem of paying for pensions would arise even if there hadn't been a baby boom. And to illustrate that, a, a colleague and I have just finished a book on pension reform. And one of the things we did was to look at age pyramids for different countries. And let me explain this. These are age pyramids for China, India, and the United States, projected for 1950. So the bottom bit shows the number of young people and as you get older and older you move up. So these are the oldest people and men and women. Now three countries. The United States had a baby boom. China had and has a one-child policy which has a similar effect. India has neither. Look at the three age pyramids for 2050. They're all essentially the same. They're strikingly similar, which says what's driving it is not the baby boom. It's people are living longer, and they're having fewer kids, and they're retiring earlier. So that's point one. It ain't the baby boom. The second point is it's not a crisis. 
there isn't an ageing problem nor a pensions crisis. I always tell my students that you, know, you have as much academic freedom as I do. You're as entitled to your opinions as, as I am. One exception, use the phrase ageing problem and you fail the exam. There isn't an ageing problem. People are living longer, healthy lives. This is one of the great triumphs of the 20th century. The problem, it's, you know, it's a huge good news story. The problem is not that people are living too long, it's that they're retiring too soon. And I do sometimes, in a whimsical, uh, in a whimsical mood, put on a public economics exam, um, something like, facing a problem of paying for pensions, the government of a country establishes a maximum duration of life. <laughs> what other more ethical and politically acceptable <laughs> methods exist? And the answer is if you want to reduce the number of pensioners, you don't stop them, you just start them early. <laughs> so you, um, sorry, you start them later. Um, so, UK data. This is a British man who retired in 1950. Had been to school for 14 years. If he made it to the then average retirement age of 67, he would have contributed for 53 years. And at age 67, a British man in 1950 had 11 remaining years of life expectancy. Person retired in 2004, 16 years of education, 48 years of contributions, 20 years of retirement. So the older guy contributed for about five years per year of retirement. The younger guy paid for about half of that. It is this longevity dividend, if you like, that makes it possible, that made it possible for Adair Turner, the chairman of the Pensions Commission, to say absolutely truthfully that if retirement age goes up as the British government have proposed it should fairly slowly, he said to people in their 40s and 30s, you will retire later than your parents but you will still have a longer period of retirement than your parents. So what are the solutions? Lower pensions, either by paying people lower monthly pensions or by paying them the same monthly pension but only from a later age. So you cut pension spending either by reducing the monthly pension or by having people being retired for a shorter period. Second solution, higher contributions. Or third solution, policies to increase national output. Those are the only solutions. There are no other solutions. So if someone comes up to you with a whiz-bang solution, say, which one or more of these buttons does the solution press? If it presses none of them, then it's smoke and mirrors. It's not a solution. But of these, later retirement is a very powerful one. It simultaneously reduces the number of pensioners and increases the number of workers. So in my evidence to the Pensions Commission, before their report, I said, probably not much more diplomatically than, than this, I said, if whatever your recommendations, if they don't include raising retirement age, the rest of the recommendations are a waste of space. And they did recommend an increase in the age of retirement for exactly the reasons that I've talked about. Um, <coughs> policies to increase national output, how do you do that? Um, Either you increase the productivity of each worker through giving him or her more and better capital equipment, or by investing in their human capital, by improving the quality of labor through uh, uh, education and training. Separately, you can increase the number of workers from each cohort, um, for example, by raising labour force participation, not only of older workers, but over uh, all age groups. I want to leave time for the third bit of pub economics, and that is that if you move to funded pensions, you can fix the problems of population ageing. Now, pay-as-you-go pensions are organised usually by the state. It's 
the contributions of you, the youngsters, this year that pay for the pensions of me, the old stagers, this year. With funded pensions, your contributions go into a savings account with your name on them, and you build up an accumulation that uh, will finance your pension. The argument is, if you've got problems of population aging, more and more older people, the argument is, if you move from pay-as-you-go pension, uh, pay pensions to funded pensions, you will solve the problem. Now, not only is this pub economics, but it's appallingly pervasive pub economics. One of my very earliest publications destroyed that argument, and that publication tragically celebrated its 30th anniversary, uh, celebrated 30th anniversary this year. It's very pervasive. And let me explain why this argument is false. And this is where you need to move from microeconomics, individual markets and individual savings, to macroeconomics. And here's the story. Imagine that you are the baby boom generation and imagine, use your imagination, I'm the smaller generation that follows. If you look at the pattern of birth rates, there was a big boom in the late 1940s, then a dip, then another boom not quite as large but longer in the mid-1960s, after which the birth rate plummeted. Now the 1948 lot are now past 60 and are on the point of tipping into retirement in very large numbers. And you might say, well, that's all right. There's the 1960s lot to look after. But get to 1965 plus 60, 2025, you're going to get the huge boom of the 1960s retiring. The 1948 boom by then will be in their 80s, not wrinklies, but crumblies, absorbing huge quantities of health care, very expensive. And who's going to be there to look after both these large pension generations but the small generation uh, that followed uh, in the 70s and 80s? So you are the baby boomers. I am the small generation of the 70s or 80s. And the argument is you, have all, you all have saved like crazy during your working life and you have these huge savings accounts and the argument is that's going to pay for your pensions in retirement problem is, when you retire, you start spending the money. What do you spend the money on? You spend it on goods and services. Who produces those goods and services? Me. Am I producing enough goods and services to satisfy the demands of this huge, rich uh, generation of pensioners? The answer is no. So for any of you who've done any macroeconomics, what happens if spending goes up at full employment? Answer, you get inflation. Too much money chasing too few goods. So if you as the large generation of pensions build up this huge accumulation of savings, but the generation that follows is a small generation that isn't producing enough, there's going to be a shortage of goods, and you as pensioners are not going to get the pensions you were planning for because of inflation. So then you say, well, I'm not going to save in money. I'm going to put money into the stock market. The problem is, when you retire, you can't spend shares. You have to sell the shares to get the money to buy the goods. To whom are you going to sell the shares? Answer, to me, the next generation of workers. Do I want to buy all the shares you want to sell? No, I don't. So here the problem is not excess demand in the goods market leading to rising prices of goods. It's excess supply of assets in the asset market and asset price deflation, stock market meltdown. So what this slide says is if output is fixed, you building up huge piles of money, it makes no difference at all. It's no different from pay-as-you-go. You've got the spending power, but the goods aren't there for you to buy. This second slide simply makes the point that if my productivity rises enough that I produce enough goods to satisfy your demands and mine, then you can fix the problem. That basically gets back to what I said in an earlier slide, that if you look at the solutions, either you pay lower pensions 
or you charge higher contributions. The only way out of those is if you can increase output enough, then you can fix the problem. So the conclusion on funding and demographics is that in the face of demographic problems, what matters is output. Policy shouldn't just obsess about the way you pay for pensions, but should look at the whole range of policies, making each worker more productive, increasing the number of workers you can get from each age cohort. From a, the perspective of macroeconomics, the choice between pay-as-you-go and funding is secondary. So why pub economics matters? Um, take two. Various bodies, including the World Bank, have pushed private funded pensions. That may be the right policy, but it's not always the right policy. It's not the right policy if the country is in short of savings. China is saving at a rate of between 40 and 50% of GDP. China needs higher savings like it needs a whole in um, A move to funded pensions has intergenerational redistributive effects that, again, I'm happy to talk about afterwards. Private funded pensions have high administrative costs. Choice has costs. If you have high administrative costs, they eat away your pension accumulation. If you pay 1% of your accumulation per year, which is at the low end of administrative charges, over a full career, that's going to reduce your pension accumulation by 20%, and hence your pension by 20%. So you then say a country like Hungary has average administrative costs of 3%, and you can see that administrative costs erode most, if not all, of the benefits. And finally, private pensions require a lot of institutional and administrative capacity. They are the wrong way to go for countries that don't have that. So my final slide, this is a quote from Pigou, the, the father of welfare economics. Uh, and it's worth reading. When a man sets out upon any course of inquiry, the object of his search may be either light or fruit, either knowledge for its own sake or knowledge for the sake of good things to which it leads. There will, I think, be general agreement that in sciences of human society, it is the promise of fruit and not of light that chiefly merits our regard. If it were not for the hope that a scientific study of men's actions may lead to practical results in social improvement, not a few students of these actions would regard the time devoted to their study as time misspent. That is true of all social sciences, but especially true of economics. So my view is economics is a very powerful social science. In some ways, I sometimes say economics is useful for getting good policy, but it's even more useful for avoiding bad policy. It's enormously useful for avoiding pub economics. Um, as they say, I commend it to your attention. Thank you very much.